Let's pray. God, we thank you for what your word teaches us, that you are the King of kings and the Lord of lords, that you are the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the one who knows the beginning from the end, the one who established all things at the beginning and has determined the end to which you are driving all things. And we thank you that before anything was, you were. And we praise you for that, and I I ask for our church that it would give us great hope and confidence in you. And we thank you that we understand these things because you have made them known to us in your word. So Lord, as we look at your word and we study it, come and minister to us through it. Open our eyes to the truth. Teach us to love you more and obey you. Um, God, just bless the time that we share as we gather together in fellowship. In Christ's name, amen. So if you haven't already, open your Bible to Genesis 41. Please do that. If you don't have a Bible, uh, we would love to give you one. We have some on our welcome table back here. And you can take one of those and keep it. But we encourage you to have a Bible. And to refresh your memory as you're kind of turning to Genesis chapter 41. Last week we saw Joseph in prison. While he was in prison, he got to meet two of Pharaoh's officials, the chief baker and the chief cupbearer. And each of those men had a dream that Joseph was able to interpret for them. And those dreams within three days came to pass precisely as Joseph interpreted them. The chief baker, tragically for him, was executed at Pharaoh's command. Whereas the chief cupbearer was restored to his position of authority in Pharaoh's kingdom. And unfortunately for Joseph, at the end of all of that, he was forgotten in prison. And so now we're going to pick up two years down the road from those events and we're going to see what happens. Let's start in verse 1 of Genesis 41. It says, after two whole years, Pharaoh dreamed that he was standing by the Nile and behold, there came up out of the Nile seven cows, attractive and plump. And they fed in the reed grass And behold, seven other cows, ugly and thin, came up out of the Nile after them and stood by the other cows on the bank of the Nile. And the ugly, thin cows ate up the seven attractive, plump cows, and Pharaoh awoke. And he fell asleep and dreamed a second time, and behold, seven ears of grain, plump and good, were growing on one stalk. And behold, after them sprouted seven ears, thin and blighted by the east wind." And the thin ears swallowed up the seven plump full ears, and Pharaoh awoke, and behold, it was a dream. So in the morning his spirit was troubled, and he sent and called for all the magicians of Egypt and all its wise men. Pharaoh told them his dreams, but there was none who could interpret them to Pharaoh. We're going to pause and kind of unpack a little bit of this, and then we'll we'll finish out uh, a few more sections here. But now we see... Pharaoh, king of Egypt, having his own dreams. After we learned about the dreams of his officials, now we zero in on Pharaoh. And because we talked about dreams in detail last week, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on that. I only want to restate my major point just to make sure that it was clear regarding special revelation that comes to us from God, which is to say that we as Christians believe that God has revealed himself to us sufficiently. 
God has spoken to, to us, to all of us, not just some of us, but all of us, through his word, through the scriptures. He has said everything that he intends to say, and he has said everything that he needs to say. And what he has most importantly said points us to Jesus, who is the word of God in the flesh. And when I was discussing dreams last week, what I was ultimately trying to do is just establish in your heart and mind a deep confidence in the scriptures that you have, that you read, that you hopefully study. If you want to hear from God, you can do that. And you can hear from God by opening up your Bible and reading the words that he has spoken to you. Isn't that incredible? God has made understanding of himself available to you through the scriptures. God continues to communicate to his people. And that communication comes through the scriptures as we read them. So let our hearts be content with what God has given to us in the Bible which is this communication to us that is clear, it's understandable, it's objective, it is for all of his people for all time until Christ returns. Now, verse 1 here tells us that two whole years have passed since Joseph was ministering and interpreting the dreams for these men in prison with him, the cupbearer and the baker, And Joseph made this request, please remember me when you find yourself in front of Pharaoh again. And of course, we find out that they forgot him, or at least the chief cupbearer forgot him. And probably you or I, if we were in a similar situation like this, we would despair. We would begin to feel discouraged that the cupbearer forgot to mention us to Pharaoh. We would probably believe that there's no chance we're getting out of prison. I mean, we've seen this theme repeated in Joseph's life, that things just continue to get worse and worse for him. And once again, we find him after two years, still in prison, still essentially hopeless. But I don't think that's Joseph's way of thinking about his situation. I don't think that there's any indication in the text, in this chapter or in any chapter about Joseph's life, that he lost his confidence in God's ability to rescue him. And I think actually quite the opposite. I think it is perfectly reasonable for us to conclude that Joseph has incredible confidence that God is still working on his behalf, that he will not be in prison forever. And the reason why I can say that with such confidence, even though I can't say here's the verse that says, and Joseph never despaired, is because when Joseph was a kid still living in his father's house, he had a dream that his family bowed down to him. That was a very important moment in Joseph's life. It laid the foundation for the rest of his life. And then years later, Joseph stands before the cupbearer and the chief baker, and they share a dream with him, and he interprets it. Don't we think that maybe that means Joseph knew the interpretation of his own dream? And what he saw in interpreting their dream came to pass within three days. And so I'm quite certain, actually, that Joseph was able to cling with confidence to the eventual fulfillment of his own childhood dream, especially 
even in these two years where he's still in prison, after he saw the dream God gave to the cupbearer and the chief baker come to pass exactly like he said it would come to pass. I believe Joseph is confident that God is working out a plan to restore him to his family. And I don't think we get any indication in the text that he doubts that. This is the God who communicates to people and then makes the word of that communication come to pass. He brings it into reality. So here's a question for you. Do you share that same kind of confidence in this God? Do you really? I mean, you don't have some childhood dream to guide you in your confidence like Joseph did. But you have something way greater than what Joseph had. Like I was saying, you and I, we have the scriptures where God speaks to us his intention for our lives. And with every passing day, as Christians, our confidence in God should grow as we read and study the Word of God, where God reveals these things to us. We would learn great confidence in God if we were to read our Bibles faithfully and regularly, because we would come across passages like Psalm 118, verse 30, that says, This God, His way is perfect. The Word of the Lord proves true. He is a shield for all those who take refuge in him. Joseph knew that, that that the word of the Lord proves true. And we should know that. So that when we come across various Bible verses, our confidence in God might grow. Verses like 1 Peter 5, verse 10 that says, And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. After you've suffered for a little while, God will do that. Or Romans chapter 8, verse 32, that says, God, who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for all of us, how will he not also, with Jesus, give us all things? Go home and ponder the significance of that verse today. Romans 8.32. Or what about the promise that Jesus made in John chapter 11 verses 25 through 26 when Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Let us have the same kind of confidence in God that Joseph had, who though he could not see precisely how God's dream for him might come to pass, still knew because of God's faithfulness that he was never abandoned or forsaken. I believe Joseph knew that the dream God gave him would come to pass. And for all of us who believe and have set our hope on Jesus Christ, we can be confident that the ending of our story is a good ending because Scripture promises us that that is true. An ending where joy will conquer sorrow, where, victory will con- where, where our victory is certain, it will conquer our failures. An ending where spiritual riches will swallow up our earthly poverty. 
and the ruinous disease of sin that we toil to fight against so regularly in this life, that disease will be forever healed, made right by the blood of Christ. That's the work that God is doing behind the scenes in our own lives, just as God has been at work behind the scenes in Joseph's life. So let us believe these things with confidence. God has promised them, and every word of God proves true. Now, as for the dreams that Pharaoh had, they must have been quite haunting. I I was up at 4 o'clock this morning. That's when I get up on Sunday mornings, and uh, I came upstairs at 5.30 to the sound of sniffling. And uh, my daughter, Briley, came walking out of her room crying because she had had a nightmare. I don't remember the details, but we've probably all had dreams like that that are just intense in the impression they leave in our minds, right? Well, Pharaoh had a dream like that. Maybe not a nightmare, but we're told twice that as he has these dreams, he's startled from sleep to being awake. The imagery of seven fat cows being consumed by seven emaciated cows followed by seven plump stalks of grain being swallowed up by seven blighted stalks of grain was enough to make Pharaoh wake from his sleep and be restless. And when morning finally dawns, Pharaoh is troubled in his soul and he knows these dreams must mean something and so he searches out an interpretation since he can't figure out the meaning himself. He calls upon his magicians, his wise men, these learned men, so that they can come and explain to him what premonition is there in his dream. And we find out that these men are powerless to help him understand. So let's think for a moment about the wisdom of man and its relationship to the knowledge of God. Because Pharaoh's lack of understanding reveals something that is true about all of mankind. All of Egypt's wise men, all of Egypt's magicians are at a loss to understand this dream that God has given to their king, Pharaoh. And I think that points us to an important truth of the Christian faith. Romans chapter 1 tells us that creation by itself does reveal some things about God, some things that are important. Man, we went as a family to um, Yellowstone last month and... If you can't see the glory of God the creator in a place like that, then I don't even know what to say about you. Romans tells us that the things which God has made in creation, through them, we perceive some things about God that are essential to his nature. We find, Romans 1 tells us, that God is eternal in power. God has eternal power. Nature itself does not have eternal power. Okay, this is the part of the sermon where I'm going to get a little philosophical with you. So hang on with me while I explain this. It is obvious to anyone who thinks about it for even a minute that nothing in the material world is without some kind of beginning. To say it another way, everything in the material world has some kind of beginning. If you see a tree in the forest you know that that tree did not just spontaneously self-manifest. It came from somewhere. This is why your little children, when they need something, they come to you. Because they understand that you 
provide things to them. You are the source of many things in their life. If you see a car, you don't assume that one day the metals and the parts and the materials just sort of crashed together and produced a vehicle. Quite the opposite. When things crash together, they tend to move towards ruin, not order. It is absurd to think that anything that is complex came into existence because of random chance or self-generation. This is a self-evident and obvious fact. Everything in the world began somewhere, which helps us understand that the creator of all that is, is eternal in power. Because he is not part of creation, he's outside of creation, he was before anything that is was ever made. He is the origin of all things. The Bible teaches us that by his eternal power, God made everything that exists in heaven and on earth by the simple act of speaking it into existence. We covered this in the first couple chapter or the first chapter of Genesis. If you want to go back to those sermons, I encourage you, you'll find some more detail on this. And think about this. Man has made mountains. It's true. Usually they're over garbage dumps. But man has never made a mountain that comes even close to something like the Himalayas. Man has made lakes, but never anything that comes close to the Pacific Ocean. Man has made energy, but nothing that burns with the same kind of fusion power like the sun. And God made all of these and more simply with a word. That's eternal power. That's the definition of power. God's power is so great that he can make from nothing the vast, almost limitless expanse of the universe simply with the word of his power. Again, to the parents in the room, sometimes you wish you had a little bit more power because you could command your children and they might actually do what you say. God commands the void, and it becomes the universe. So the Bible teaches that man can observe these things about creation, and we can understand some basic things about God, his divine nature, his eternal power. But beyond that, what can you know about an invisible, all-knowing, all-powerful God? What can you know? Have you ever read any philosophy where man tries to make his way to understanding about God? It is weird. It's weird. And the fruitless attempts of Pharaoh's wise men and magicians remind us that humans are powerless to know anything about God unless God shows us, unless he reveals it, unless he tells us, unless he speaks it and makes it known. God is a mystery to us unless he opens our minds to comprehend him and understand. For us to know anything about God, God must reveal it. Specific knowledge of what God is doing, what God is like, all of that must come to man through the kindness of God who makes it known to us. And as powerful as Pharaoh was, Pharaoh claimed himself to be a kind of God. In the ancient world, kings like this were demigods. They were minor deities. Pharaoh claimed himself to be a kind of God, and yet he knew nothing about what his dream meant unless God made it known to him. And friends, this is why the Bible is so precious to us as Christians. I mean, I'm just going to continue to hit on this theme this morning. 
This is why we put so much emphasis on it. This is why you need to own one and read it and treasure it. Because apart from God's generous revelation of himself in his word, his self-disclosure in the Bible, we would be in darkness and ignorance. And we see the consequence of darkness and ignorance all around us in a broken world, don't we? We cannot know the true meaning of our existence. We cannot know the nature of reality without God explaining these things to us. We cannot know anything about the spiritual realm, what is beyond the mere material. We cannot understand why life exists. Or maybe one of the greatest questions of all, what happens to the human soul after you die? We can know none of this without help from God. And God has helped us. He's made it known in his word. He's told us we were created in his image for his glory, to be in fellowship with him, to worship him. We were made to humbly set our hearts upon him, to serve him. Because we were created by him, we are dependent upon him. Without him, we have no life. We are lost. We are destined for ruin unless we seek him and surrender ourselves to him. This we know because God has explained it in his word. And Pharaoh's ignorance of the meaning of his dream and Joseph's wisdom to reveal that meaning to Pharaoh is a reminder that apart from God making things known to us, we are lost in darkness. Read with me in verse 9. Let's go further. Then the chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh, I remember my offenses today. When Pharaoh was angry with his servants and put me in the chief baker in custody in the house of the captain of the guard, we dreamed on the same night, he and I, each having a dream with its own interpretation. A young Hebrew was there with us, a servant of the captain of the guard. When we told him, he interpreted our dreams to us, giving an interpretation to each man according to his dream. And as he interpreted to us, so it came about. I was restored to my office, and the baker was hanged. Then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph, and they quickly brought him out of the pit. And when he had shaved himself and changed his clothes, he came in before Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, I have had a dream, and there is no one who can interpret it. I have heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. Joseph answered Pharaoh, It is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Behold, in my dream I was standing on the banks of the Nile. Seven cows, plump and attractive, came out of the Nile and fed in the reed grass. Seven other cows came up after them, poor and very ugly and thin, such as I had never seen in all the land of Egypt. And the thin, ugly cows ate up the first seven plump cows, but when they had eaten them, no one would have known that they had eaten them, for they were still as ugly as at the beginning. Then I awoke. I also saw in my dream seven ears growing on one stalk, full and good, Seven ears, withered, thin, and blighted by the east wind, sprouted up after them. And the thin ears swallowed up the seven good ears. And I told it to the magicians, but there was no one who could help explain it to me. Now, much of what we read in these verses is a repeat of what we already learned about Pharaoh's dream. He's now just expressing it publicly to Joseph. So what I really want to focus in on in these verses is the power and authority of kings. 
Maybe you saw this as we were reading. When we read our Bible, though, one of the things that can be a difficulty for us is that there is some cultural distance between us and the text. There are things that we're unfamiliar with that we come across that make it kind of tough to like step into the context and understand what's going on. One of those things, particularly when you read the Old Testament, but also in the New Testament, is that we live in a representative republic. That's our form of government. I promise this will make sense. Hang with me. We live in a system of government that is supposed to be governed by the people for the people. That means that we are on equal footing with those who are in authority over us. We elect a president and politicians and they work for us. Well, the story of scripture unfolds in a governmental system or governmental systems, there's a number of them, that are kingdoms. Kingdoms operate very differently than republics or democracies. In a kingdom, everything exists for the king. The people serve him. The power belongs to him, unquestionably. All authority is his. And this concept is really quite unfamiliar to us. And yet through most of human history, it was a fearsome thing to serve a king. To be brought before a king was something that would send you trembling. Because the the power and authority of a king or a queen, it was absolute. It was unquestionable. Now, we already did get a little picture of this as we were reading chapter 40 last week, right? Because the cupbearer and the baker are thrown in prison by Pharaoh. We're never told what they did. We don't even know. Like, they could have just worn the wrong shoes that day for all we knew. And that's what put them in prison. They displeased Pharaoh. And that was enough for him to throw them in jail. And then later we find out that... The cupbearer is restored to his position and the baker is hanged. And again, we don't know any reason other than it was just Pharaoh's birthday party. There was no trial. Pharaoh demanded it and that's what happened. And verse 9 here tells us that the chief cupbearer knows what a serious thing it is to serve the king because even in his effort to help Pharaoh king of Egypt, he speaks very carefully as he approaches the king. He does not say, oh Pharaoh, I remember that time when you uh, really like wrongfully imprisoned me, uh, but then later you changed your mind because you realized it was a mistake and you let me out. That is not how he approaches the subject. He comes before the king with humility and deference. He says, Pharaoh, I remember my offenses. I'm an offensive guy to you, Pharaoh. Because without humility before a king, you are likely to lose your life. And when Pharaoh hears about Joseph, notice what else takes place. We're told in verse 14, they bring him quickly. Because it is the nature of kings to get what they ask for quickly. In a time frame that pleases them. And Pharaoh's servants grab Joseph and they don't haul him looking like a cesspool of prison in front of Pharaoh. No, they change his clothes and they shave him. Because it is the nature of kings to require excellence in their presence. Not filth. And when Joseph is brought before Pharaoh... 
He doesn't say, hey, Pharaoh, I'm your guy. You've been looking for me. He keeps his mouth shut until Pharaoh speaks because it is the nature of kings to speak first and to command. Now, if this is how kings on earth are treated by the subjects who serve them, how much more should the servants of Jesus, Jesus who is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, how much more should we who serve him show him reverence and respect? See, living in a culture without kings has made us arrogant. It's made us proud people. It tempts us to think that Jesus as our brother, which scripture does describe him in that way, is essentially our equal. It causes us to come before God with our pleas and present them boldly to him, which we can as his children, but often with expectations we shouldn't have with a tone of command or demand that we shouldn't have. We have lost the art in a democratic society of falling on our face before those with unquestioned authority. Gabe was even telling me a story recently about a judge who in his courtroom uh, took a man who was a juror and ended up throwing him in jail. And I was deeply offended by that story. Because what right does a judge have to do that? Well, when you're talking about Jesus, the judge, every right. We have lost the right sense of serving faithfully before royalty. We've grown up in a culture of equality, checks and balances, where power is dispersed. But in fact, we live in a universe where all power and all authority does belong to a king. Jesus, the King of kings and Lord of lords. And we would do well to remember that it is the right of a king to speak first, to command, to require excellence in his presence, to expect his subjects to be humble and lowly before him, to be committed to the work of serving him. If Pharaoh can command the kind of reverence that we see in these verses, how much more so does our God deserve our attention, our loyalty, our service? And it is good for us as creatures to think rightly about God with all of his majesty, all of his glory, all of his power. It is not good for us to be flippant or careless as we think about God and we serve him. God loves us. So because that is true, we can be confident in his presence, that his will toward us is good, that's true. But we should never use God's goodness or his love as an excuse to not serve him well, to not serve him with reverence and obedience and awe. He is a king and we are his subjects. Now, as much as Joseph understands his lowly position before Pharaoh, notice how incredibly bold this man is before the king. Because he does not hide the fact that Joseph believes in a God who is higher than Pharaoh. When Joseph answers Pharaoh in verse 16, he speaks of a God that Pharaoh does not worship. He speaks of 
an authority that is above Pharaoh. And Joseph, in doing that, is taking a huge risk. If Pharaoh wanted, he could say, who do you think you are? I'm God, and off with your head as well. And yet, because Joseph is confident that God is greater than Pharaoh, he is bold to say what is true. And Pharaoh is eager for an interpretation to his dream, so he doesn't condemn Joseph. He replies, and we get a very similar retelling of his dream. There's a few details that are different, but let's read on and let's see what happens as a result. Verse 25. Then Joseph said to Pharaoh, the dreams of Pharaoh are one. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. The seven good cows are seven years, and the seven good ears are seven years. The dreams are one. The seven lean and ugly cows that came up after them are seven years, and the seven empty ears blighted by the east wind are also seven years of famine. It is as I told Pharaoh, God has shown to Pharaoh what he is about to do. There will come seven years of great plenty throughout all the land of Egypt, But after them, there will arise seven years of famine, and all the plenty will be forgotten in the land of Egypt. The famine will consume the land, and the plenty will be unknown in the land by reason of the famine that will follow, for it will be very severe. And the doubling of Pharaoh's dream means that the thing is fixed by God, and God will shortly bring it about. Now therefore, let Pharaoh select a discerning and wise man and set him over the land of Egypt, Let Pharaoh proceed to appoint overseers over the land and take one-fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt during the seven plentiful years. And let them gather all the food of these good years that are coming and store up grain under the authority of Pharaoh for food in cities and let them keep it. That food shall be a reserve for the land against the seven years of famine that are to occur in the land of Egypt so that the land may not perish through the famine. So, We're going to see that Pharaoh believes Joseph's interpretation, and we're going to see the consequence of that next week. We're we're going to stop with the text there. There's probably two reasons why Pharaoh believes Joseph. The first one is because God is at work behind the scenes in Joseph's life to lead Pharaoh to believe the interpretation of the dream. But also, I'm sure the testimony of the cupbearer who says to Pharaoh, hey, this guy interpreted my dream perfectly. I'm sure that that also helps Pharaoh come to see that Joseph's interpretation is correct. But as a result, again, we're going to see next week, Pharaoh's response is that he's pleased with Joseph. He makes Joseph the man who will administrate all of this effort to store grain over the next 14 years. And although it has now taken a significant amount of time, this is where the story turns for Joseph. And God's favor upon Joseph will finally become evident as God sets in motion the events leading to the fulfillment of Joseph's own dream from his childhood. Now, let me move to close with two final thoughts here, okay? First, I want to point out to you how utterly irrelevant kings and rulers are under the absolute authority of this God. How utterly irrelevant and powerless kings and rulers are under the authority of God. Not only can Pharaoh not understand the dream that God gave him, he's powerless to know its meaning. He can do absolutely nothing to stop the prophetic 
word of the dream from coming to fruition, coming to pass. Yes, he can put together a plan to mitigate the potential damage of the famine that is coming, and he will do that at Joseph's suggestion. But Pharaoh cannot stop the seven years of famine. Pharaoh cannot bring about the seven years of extra blessing. And even though Pharaoh is great, he is powerless to change what God has determined to do. And I want you to understand the touch of any person upon human history is no greater than what God permits. That's a wonderful truth. Even the most powerful people of history cannot alter the plans of God. Think about how practical that is for our world right now. Think about the current state of our world or our nation. Maybe you feel it in competent politicians who waste tax dollars and create painful inflation. Leaders of nations that are slowly dragging the world potentially into a possible nuclear war. Globalist bureaucrats forcing their secular agenda on people, only leading to greater suffering when people just want to live their lives. Government corruption enforcing godless ideologies through education or whatever other programs. Hypocritical leaders who thrust on people burdens that they themselves are utterly unwilling to carry. I'll be more specific. Putin, Biden, the World Economic Forum, the United Nations, NATO, China... All of these nations, all of these leaders, all of these organizations, as powerful as they are, they are ultimately irrelevant, irrelevant to do anything to arrest what God is doing. It is true they have power, like Pharaoh himself had great power, power potentially even to imprison and kill. I do not deny that. But their power is no greater than what God ordains for them. Whatever actions they take in the end, they only serve to advance God's plan for humanity so that at the end of history, all men will will perceive the glory of God. Every knee will bow to worship Christ. Justice will be done and love will prevail. That is the consummate end of history. And my friends, the American experience that we have known, it's changing very quickly. Um, I don't know how you could not be aware of that rapid change. And who knows what might be on the horizon. But just as Pharaoh could not alter what God had planned for the nation of Egypt, no ruler or nation can alter what God has put in motion. The plan that God is working, which we know leads to the salvation of his people and the exaltation of Jesus over all things. And this leads to my final point. Think about the lengths to which God will go in order to accomplish his good plans. Think about all the crazy twists and turns along the way in the life of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph. This is a plan regarding Joseph's life that was first mentioned by God to Abraham four generations ago back in Genesis chapter 15, specifically the plan about slavery in a foreign nation. And if we really think about it, this plan is not going to cease unfolding here with the life of Joseph as he becomes Pharaoh's right-hand man. No, it's going to continue through 400 years of slavery for Abraham's descendants 
in Egypt. And more than a thousand years of Abraham's descendants living in the promised land, as God said they would. And it will find its climax, the plan of God, in the birth of the Son of God, Jesus, who will be the Savior of the world. And Ephesians chapter 1 tells us that this plan that God has been working through thousands of years of human history and generation after generation of people living, this plan was actually a plan that God put in motion before he formed the foundations of the world. All of this God has done for his good purposes to save lost people, to show his love and power, to bring glory to his own name. And no nation, no king, no ruler, no power has been able to alter the plan that God will surely bring to an end. So now think about your life for just a moment. Think about the difficulties that you might be facing. I can only imagine financial, health, maybe mental discouragement. There's a whole host of things. But in light of what I just said about God's plan, think about how simple it is for God to work the events of your life for his good purposes. Were you paying attention to the words of the song we sung? We rest within the wisdom of your plan. Oh, how little faith we have when we worry about our problems, when we fret. Why should we doubt God's power? Because our problems aren't solved fast enough, you know, because we pray and like within 48 hours we didn't get what we were asking for. When God has been working the plan through millennia of history, Do we doubt because we aren't becoming mature swiftly enough? We, we have a vision of godliness and we're trying to press towards it, but it's just not happening as quickly as we would like. When we know that God cultivates his people through many long seasons of trial and testing. Do we doubt because we feel like things are out of control, although God has declared to us that all of the earth and the fullness of it, it is his to command. Do we doubt because of the unsure nature of the future? We don't know what tomorrow holds. Although God has said he knows the beginning from the end. He is the Alpha and the Omega. Do we doubt because of the obstacles we face? When scripture tells us that this is the God who can take valleys and make them mountains and take the boldness of the mountains and cast them into the sea at a word. Do any trials or any uncertainties really seem like difficulties in light of what God has revealed about himself to us in his word. Our problem is never God's power to safeguard or to save. Our real problem is that we just don't believe. So may God overcome our doubts and grow our faith and trust in him because of what his word teaches about his power and his love for us. Let's pray. God, I ask that you would do just that. That you would overcome our unbelief. That you would conquer our doubt. That you would grow our faith. That we would truly learn to trust you. I pray that as we read your word, we would become confident in your love towards us and your goodness and your power. 
Lord, would you lift up our hearts by tearing down our unbelief. In Christ's name, amen.